Welcome to B2B Marketing Needs Don Draper, brought to you by True. For too long, B2B has lacked creativity and inspiration, leading to alarming declines in effectiveness and marketing departments being slowly devalued more and more within their organizations. We're here to change that by getting under the skin of what it really means to be a highly effective B2B marketer. We'll be speaking to some of the brightest minds in the industry to discuss what they're doing to be a bit more, well, Don Draper. And now, here's your host, Stuart Black. Joining us today on B2B Needs Don Draper are Richard Parsons and Cosmin Guides, co-founders at True, which was recently named B2B Creative Agency of the Year. And of course, they are the brains behind this podcast. So Richard and Cos, welcome back to the show and happy 2023. Happy New Year, Stuart. Thanks, Stuart. Great to be back. And how were your holidays, Richard? Did you have a good time? Yeah, of course, it was a family affair, so um, always good. Spent uh, Christmas Day with some of my nephews who were very boisterous. So yeah, a lot of fun. Oh, I'm jealous. Ours was a bit of a write-off. We had a, a COVID quarantine, which was, in the end, quite nice and stress-free, but uh, not quite the same. Cos, how about you? Yeah, lovely. I've got two young boys, so Christmas is always magical around, around children. So yeah, it was very nice and relaxed and now raring to go for the new year. Good to hear. And we're doing a bit of a special review podcast today. We had some great guests from a wide spectrum of B2B and B2C brands giving their views on how B2B marketing is changing and how they're running marketing in their organizations. So today, the plan is that we'll play some clips from key episodes and give you both a chance to respond to what the guests said. Does that sound interesting? It sounds interesting. It sounds scary because we've not, we don't know these clips until you suddenly spring them on us. So yeah, so we'll have to think on our feet. Well, this is it. We're throwing them at you and uh, you've got to really just respond from the gut and tell us what you think. So um, hopefully that leads to some excellent spontaneous answers. We'll hear from David Tiltman, the Senior Vice President of Content at Walk, Miriam Faber, UK Head of Business Marketing at Meta, Isabel Sita Lumsden, Head of B2B Marketing Europe at TikTok, Kirsten Stagg, Marketing Director at Skoda, and True's own Martin Harrison, who is Strategy Director there. So first off then, we're going to play David Tiltman. He was in episode five, and we asked him, why is now a good time to be in B2B marketing? So I think there's two reasons, uh, which I'd sort of summarize as growth and uh, opportunity. So if you look at the sectors and the areas that are growing in terms of advertising investment, they are they lean into B2B. So we did some work at the end of last year that looked at the size of different categories and their growth rates. And areas like financial services, utilities and telecoms, tech companies, you know, all these, all these areas that have significant B2B uh, interests, if you like, they are bigger than what you might call classic marketing categories like packaged goods, food, drink, those sorts of things. And they grow more quickly. So B2B is in a good space in terms of uh, being a, a growing uh, growing part of the marketing sector. And there's, there's more and more interest in how B2B marketers sort of operate. 
Now, the other side of it is opportunity. So it's not just about money. It's also about the types of, uh, the types of activity available to uh, a B2B marketer. Um, we've seen a huge amount of new thinking in the B2B space. Obviously, our friends at the B2B Institute have driven a lot of that. Um, we've the report we're going to come on to talk about does a bit of this, and we're seeing growing interest in creative thinking, creative brand building within the B two B space. Um, and partly that's that's because of the disruption due to the pandemic. We did some work last year that looked at um, how B two B marketers had responded to the pandemic and responded to, in many ways, the disruption to events, which has been a classic B two B marketing strategy. All of a sudden, marketers are having to think differently, think in new ways, look for different ways to to reach their audiences. So um, I think it's a really good time now to be in B2B for those two reasons. It's it's a really fast-growing part of the overall marketing sector, and there's lots of new thinking coming into it. So Richard, I'm going to come to you first. What did you think of his remarks there? I thought it was quite interesting that because they had measured growth in B2B, they had made the assumption that now growth uh, in B2B was higher than in the consumer side of things. That's actually always been the case. It might just be that he has some uh, recent research that allows him to measure that. But it's always been the case that B2B um, has been higher growth than consumer packaged goods, for example. Um, You know, there are a lot of innovation uh, taking place in B2B. I'm not talking maybe forever. I mean, industrial marketing 50 years ago, maybe not. But if you go back to... Uh, certainly in the noughties, um, you've seen a massive growth in the digitization of business. And so we've seen huge amounts of growth. So that's always been there. So I'm not sure that that actually plays into why this is a golden age or a special time for B2B. Um, I would agree, though, that the routes to market and the, the uh, some of the other elements that, that he talked about, that is where we have seen an explosion in the kind of channels and stuff like that. He touched on it slightly. But I think that that actually is one of the other really big, big reasons. Of course, the B2B Institute bringing some empirical evidence to why B2B is, is uh, an exciting space and how you do B2B well has helped B2B marketers move from being at the bottom of the funnel towards the top end of the funnel, which is where we see all of those, um, that, that brand building activity is where you get some of the benefits of how brand contributes to growth. So you can see that the marketing starts to become a catalyst for some of that growth as well. Um, yeah, I mean, I would agree that we're in a golden age. Uh, I just am um, not completely convinced that it's so new that, that uh, B2B um, is suddenly a growth area since the pandemic. It's always been a high growth area. And Cos, let me come to you then. What's your take? Yeah, I think that Richard uh, covered it really well. I thought that David actually covered it really well. It's a really exciting time for B2B um, to the point that Richard made around the channels um, and this co- combination with B- the B2B Institute doing this great research around um, the power of building brand. We now have this like amazing um, upward pressure um, coming from, from B2B marketers towards their stakeholders to argue the case for better investment to argue the case for doing uh, the type of work that they've never done before um, and moving shifting the needle really from marketing just being this lead generation function to supporting longer term growth and the commercial objectives of the business so it's a very exciting time great stuff one more clip from david tiltman we also asked him uh, about the white paper that Walk has published called the B2B Effectiveness Code. Uh, I asked him to tell us a little bit about the research, the methodology, and the findings of that report. 
2020, we released the original Effectiveness Code white paper with a researcher called James Herman. Uh, he's based in, in New Zealand. Um, and in partnership with our, our sister company, Can Lions. And this was an attempt, it was a sort of result of a two-year project to really try and understand the effectiveness market, if you like, uh, and some of the frustrations that that people felt with it. Because we were getting a real sense that that the world of effectiveness, if you like, and the way it was awarded and uh, uh, and sort of tracked was not really cutting it for clients and agencies. And one of the big pieces of feedback we got from that uh, research piece was about the lack of definition around effectiveness. So we were saying, look, everyone has a different definition of effectiveness. Clients and agencies are talking at cross purposes when they when they're talking about effectiveness. You know, what does it mean to be effective? You know, we think we know, but actually, if you've got different definitions of that word between different parties, then actually you can be talking at cross purposes. Absolutely. And so what we did was we actually we actually tried to create a framework that would help people understand the different types of effect that marketing communications drives. Um, mm-hmm. And that became in this original this original paper in 2020, what we call the creative effectiveness ladder. Now, I appreciate we're on a podcast, so it's quite hard to, you know, describe a, a graphic uh, framework, but it, it's effectively a hierarchy of six um, steps or six rungs of a ladder, if you like. And they range from sort of the least impactful to the most impactful from from a sort of long-term commercial standpoint. And what we were trying to do is say, look, anything on this anything on this ladder can be considered effective. You know, there's there's nothing on here that isn't worth having, if you like. But some effects are <laughs> some effects are better in a sort of long-term commercial sense than others. So in in the original ladder, we we looked at the very sort of bottom at things like campaign effects, like social shares and, and all the rest of it, right up to the very top, which is talking about multi-year profit growth. So you between them, you've got a number of rungs which uh, relate to different types of effects and different types of impact. So we'd established that, but that was largely for the B2C audience. And what we did is um, in 2021 is work with the B2B Institute to say, well, if we were to look at just B2B campaigns, and we managed to isolate about 430-odd campaigns in the Walk database to review, if we just looked at B2B campaigns, what would a B2B ladder look like? Would it look the same? Would it look would it look different? Uh, would it have slightly different rungs, different terminology? And so that's what we produced. So we produced a paper called the B2B Effectiveness Code, which looked at, uh, which, which introduced this idea of a B2B Effectiveness Ladder, uh, which creates what we hope will be a sort of um, unified definition of effectiveness uh, for B2B marketers. Cause, what's your take on what David's saying there? Well, I think the, the B2B Effectiveness Code is one of the most important papers that, that has come out in recent times. It's been, it was done by Walk in, um, in association with the Can Lions. Um, as David mentions, it's 430-odd uh, B2B case studies that have been covered. And you have this now this clear definition of what effectiveness is based on different objectives. Now, what I thought was most interesting within that was the correlation between rising 
to the top of the ladder, so being the, mo- the most effective campaigns at the top of the ladder, and something that they call the creative commitment score. And there's a direct correlation. The higher your creative commitment score, the higher up you are on the ladder. And the creative commitment score is a composite measure of a campaign's duration, so how long you run with the same creative strategy in market. So there's something really important about that because it builds consistent memory structures and distinctive assets for a campaign. It makes it more recognizable, which makes it more effective. Uh, the media investment that goes behind it, so campaigns with a um, a higher budget and investment behind them uh, perform significantly better and have a better return for uh, their stakeholders. And also the um, having a broad mix of channels. So not just running a campaign in one or two or three channels. It's, it's been shown within the, within the paper that campaigns that run in four plus channels are the most effective. So I guess the message there is to be really effective, you need to put a decent media investment behind it, um, make sure that you run a multi-channel campaign, a truly multi-channel campaign, and stick to the same creative strategy. That's so important. And Richard, are, are you impressed with the paper? Yeah, absolutely. It's, 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 it's a great paper. The one thing I would say is that it, it is an optimistic paper. It, all, it assumes that every campaign has a positive impact. Now, there is a school of thought that says that if you just run a piece of communication and it's simply your logo that that in itself would give you some sort of positive result. And there, there's some validity to that. But I would argue that some creative actually might have a negative uh, impact. So whereas the ladder assumes always a positive score against every campaign, I would say that we also should have a negative score against certain campaigns. And we should have an ability to better measure something and say, is this actually damaging to the business? Is this damaging to the brand? Will it have a negative response? And I think that there is a negative creative effect in this ladder that runs in the opposite direction that actually isn't covered in the paper. I'm not saying it would run all the way through to the pod to, to, to the, you know, uh, a, a negative all the way through to kind of extreme, extreme version of mirroring the, the other side. But there surely is when you look at certain campaigns, you think, actually, that's quite a confusing message, or that's um, going to have no standout, and absolutely no one's going to recognise that it exists. Surely that's a negative because it's cost you money. You've had to invest in that, but actually it's had no impact at all. Uh, and Cos, you had a thought on that? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, True, we we launched something that we call the Creative Effectiveness Scale, um, which looks at it slightly differently. So you have from, uh, if you can imagine a scale in a podcast, from left to right, you go from least to most commercially impactful. And at the bottom end of the scale, we have, this is how we judge uh, creative ideas. You have ideas that could be damaging to a brand. So that would obviously have a negative commercial um, impact on the business. Then you have an idea that's uh, invisible. People won't even notice it. We call it wallpaper. Then an idea that gets noticed, one that grabs attention, and then one that generates fame. And that fame building uh, campaign is an idea that gets shared. It's the type of idea that will maybe get earned media coverage. So that's really what we should be aiming for. And that's the way that we try and judge every idea that comes out of the creative department at True. Mm, so looking at the problems as well as, as the benefits, it sounds uh, very logical. Um, now, in episode six, we spoke with Miriam Faber, who's the UK head of business marketing at Meta. Uh, we asked Miriam... Uh, to give us some examples of how Meta is raising the profile of the brand through top-line creative brand building. And here's what she said. I think for me, it's really about trying to demonstrate, you know, where our our incredible reach, you know, we have over 3.6 billion users on our platforms. Um, 
the best examples come when we're actually making change and impact at scale um, and, and through creativity. And I think one of the examples that really comes to mind is something that we did around um, the Euros last year. So obviously with COVID, you know, 2020, everything happened. A lot of people essentially, you know, got benched, um, whether that was because of football, whether they couldn't play through all sorts of reasons. And actually what our team did in Creative Shop is kind of like our internal agency creators, if you like. What they did was they saw this as a huge opportunity and said, right, well, we've got one of the huge brands that play football, right? It's Adidas. What do we do with all the players that are basically not able to play, but we still want to use them and use the power of their voices, power of their communities to actually do something? Mm. So what we did was we created a campaign called Hashtag Home Team. And what they basically did was everyone on the Adidas team, so all the sponsored athletes, which are obviously very, very high profile, essentially be able to uh, go away and start using this hashtag home team to create a, sorry, to almost create like a movement. So what they did was start to, you know, show people what their daily lives were like, you know. You're not going there to play, you know, at the Euros. You're not at the Olympics. But hang on, this is what my real life looks like. Um, and I think that was incredibly inspirational. You know, it was creative in the fact that actually we turned players into almost news channels if you like you know and if you think about how many millions of followers each of those players have what we did was create a community of people who are also at home love sport love their plays but they're not watching football so i think you know creativity doesn't necessarily have to be like you know a beautiful above the line piece or a piece of tv advertising or even something you know uh, an advertisement i think again you know going back to those connected voices, those experiences is kind of when our platforms really are at their best is using the people who are using our tools and products to make real world change. Cos, are you impressed by that strategy? Yeah, it's great. I mean, obviously, Meta are in a very privileged uh, position with uh, the reach that they have. But it's a great example of when we're thinking about building brand, building uh, reach, building out communication. Um you shouldn't just be thinking in a very siloed way and thinking that advertising is the only answer. We need to be thinking outside of the box. It's true we have a mantra that we say advertising is anything that makes our clients famous. So it encourages thinking to come from all different angles. So we approach problems from different angles, strategy looks at it in different ways. And the answer doesn't necessarily have to be an ad. The answer can be a social idea where we're leveraging influencers, um, or it can be um, something that generates uh, widespread widespread earned media coverage through through traditional PR, for example. I think the the best example um, of a campaign that generates widespread PR in that way, and I've talked about it in previous episodes, is the Fearless Girl from State Street Global Advisors, a statue of a girl that was put on Wall Street in front of the bull to promote female leadership in, in large organisations. And that generated billions and billions of earned media impressions um, on social media, but also across uh, news channels. So we have to be thinking creatively and, and thinking in different ways in, in the way that we approach creativity. And Richard, what's your view on Meta's creative problem solving uh, with that one? Well, as Cos says, they're in a really privileged position to have, um, they're basically, uh, they're lots of types of business, but they're a media business fundamentally. And one of the things that we also talk about is baking the product into your communications. And they're very fortunate in the sense that they have got that reach throughout their product, which means that they can bake 
in ideas into their creative communications. We recently ran a campaign for Acora, where we also baked in their offering into the communication. So they're an IT outsourcer um, and they focus on the end user, so the employee with inside the organization. And they focus on their um, experience of IT. And so as part of their process, they're monitoring the end user experience that are looking at sentiment analysis of the employees, et cetera. So they've built a whole range of products around that measurement rather than the SLA, the service level agreement, which historically has been used to say that we'll answer the phone within two seconds or we'll get your IT up and running within three hours or whatever it might be. So they've shifted from the SLA to the XLA, the experience level agreement. And then we just had to take that in communications. So it's kind of that whole uh, baking the product into the communications is kind of a, 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 it's a, a bit of a superhero. And if you can find it, it actually makes your communications a hell of a lot more relevant. Next up then is uh, Isabel Sita Lumsden. Uh, she's the head of B2B Marketing uh, Europe uh, for TikTok. Uh, she was uh, with us back in episode nine. And we asked her, what are the key lessons B2B brands can learn from the Sage example? So let's hear what she had to say about that. I think the first is that B2B brands can leverage TikTok's creator community in an impactful way. I think, I, w- I wonder if as a business, you don't necessarily think about creators uh, and connecting with businesses, but creators are such an important part of the TikTok platform, but just a really great opportunity to land a really engaging campaign there. So there's a real opportunity for B2B brands to tap into like community-driven trends, which is actually something Sage did. So I don't know if you saw that trend. Tell me your something without telling me you're something so they did you know tell me your successful business that kind of thing so they really lent into a trend um, and used creators to sort of help that trend explode on the platform um it's all about joining in so tiktok is a platform about engagement as a community and if you're a brand that can lean into that you'll really benefit from that and that's like a key learning richard your view yeah, what's interesting about that Sage campaign is it was all around uh, the Boss It campaign. I don't know if, if, uh, if people can recall that campaign. The problem with, I would say, with, with Sage is that they move their campaigns too fast. Um, we talked a little bit about the Creative Commitment Score a minute ago, and um, they had the uh, Boss it campaign just, I don't know, two, three years ago, and now they're already moving on to the to the next one. I think that they, there is um, something to be said for them just kind of picking a creative strategy and sticking with it. Uh, but the Boss it campaign, as it ran then, um, that's how they, it was that campaign that they implemented on on uh, TikTok. And so they were really asking people to say how they had bossed it in their business. And therefore, a lot of businesses were then saying how they had, um, you know, these user creators were saying how they had bossed it and how they had been successful in that particular thing where they had been able to take control or where they were able to, to kind of um, uh, have a little quick win or something. And uh, I can see, you know, you can see um, very quickly how you take the big brand idea and then pass that on to a user for them to kind of extrapolate and take forward. And then you get a lot more kind of dialogue, a lot more in- engagement. And I forget the numbers because um, uh, I'm sure we covered this in actually one of our, it was covered in this uh, in, in this uh, TikTok um, uh, podcast. But actually, some of the numbers that came out of that were phenomenal. So it was a huge, huge success, which is why TikTok are kind of taking that case study out around everywhere and saying, this is how B2B does TikTok. So, so it's a really it's an interesting case study. I'd encourage everybody to go back and listen to that podcast. And Cos, your view on this one? Yeah, like Richard said, um, what Sage did really well was 
used TikTok and actually brought people into the conversation. And I think that by doing that, you're essentially just starting um, this this mass mass response from um, potential um, potential prospects that may otherwise not have known of Sage. So, I think that that is probably the best example that we've seen um, of a B two B brand running anything on TikTok. Um, obviously, it's targeting small businesses, so. I think that there's much more of an opportunity to use TikTok when you're when you're targeting small businesses. Um, I think that the demographic shifts down, but over time, obviously, as the TikTok user base starts getting older, I think that it's going to start becoming more and more relevant to B two B across all categories, quite frankly, and targeting all audiences. Um, and it's something that we are actively uh, thinking about um, at True. Um, in terms of how best to leverage that platform for various different different clients. Richard, you wanted to add something. Yeah, I think that what I learned from that podcast is that actually I did have a bias where I thought TikTok was really for the kids. You know, it was a young platform and probably not very relevant for B2B. But the sheer numbers that they have already on TikTok means that you can carve out and look at your audiences and say, hey, there's our B2B audience. There's the owner managers of those small businesses. And the numbers are vast. So actually, we shouldn't dismiss TikTok or we shouldn't actually start to say, oh, it's for a younger crowd. And as they get older, you know, therefore we should be on TikTok today because eventually Eventually they'll be in market. They are in market already. There are people who are, you know, uh, granddads and, and, and grandmothers who are on TikTok. Uh, there are a range of people and, there are, and they are there in volume. So you can go and find your audiences. It's true that the vast majority of their demographic is a younger demographic, but in within there, you can find your niche audience really easily. And once you're sucked into TikTok, it's very hard to escape. So uh, watch this space, I guess. <laughs> um, let's move on to Kirsten Stagg, uh, marketing director at Skoda, uh, who've gone through an amazing rebranding uh, over the last few years. Um, we asked Kirsten to talk about share of market. Uh, we said uh, that only 5% of people are in the market for a car at any one point. How do you talk to the other 95% to make sure you're always in people's consideration set? And this is what she said to us. It's, it's really tricky, isn't it? Particularly with um, media, you know, recently with media inflation, it, it's very expensive to be uh, on TV. And I think AV can play a really important role here because we know how powerful AV is for um, engaging uh, with customers and, and, and changing perception. So we try to maximise our AV presence as much as we can. And um, I think, you know, partnerships and sponsorships can play a, a really important role there, just making sure that that you have a, a, a regular a regular presence. But then with our customer base and our prospect base, we um, we invest a lot of time in CRM activity also to make sure that we're just always kind of quite light touch, but keeping people informed, uh, making them feel connected to the brand and social, of course. Cos, do you want to tell us what you think of this one? Yeah, it's interesting. I think, I mean, ultimately, when you have um, long purchase cycles, like with a car, and you don't have people tend not to be in market. Most most of the people that you're speaking to are out of market. Building brand presence is absolutely critical. That's where it becomes even more important um, because you want to be speaking to the entire market because you don't really necessarily know when an individual is coming into market. So, in that, these long purchase cycles are absolutely the same in B two B. 
Um, and that's why brand building is so important. That's all of the research that's been coming out of the B2B Institute of late and, and why everyone, I think, is starting to change tact a little bit in terms of balancing or rebalancing their spend um, in, in brand versus sales activation. Now, what I'd say with Skoda is that they did some great advertising um, like 10, 15 years ago. And it was interesting to hear her say that um, it's very media is very expensive. Um, whereas I don't think that we should be really looking at media in that way. We should be looking at media as this as an investment, as something that's going to be driving growth. So for whatever reason, I don't know why, but it seems like uh, Skoda started divesting in advertising for some reasons, divesting in, in creativity and doing those really funny ads um, from, from uh, years gone by. Um, and seeing advertising as being this, this, is, this cost as opposed to um, a driver of growth. Very interesting. And and Richard, uh, do, you, do you agree with Cos there? Or what's your take on what Kirsten was saying? Yeah, I would agree. Actually, I'm not convinced that media, that TV is more expensive. I've got a feeling that um, it's the, the, the costs are coming down. So maybe uh, I've got different data to, to, uh, to, to, the, to the other set. But I think the, the, the thing I learned from this podcast is you know, the reason why we invited Skoda to come along is because we were interested to understand what we could, you know, what as B2B marketers, what we could learn from another category. And actually, I think that the divide between B2B and B2C can sometimes be a bit arbitrary, a, a bit false. I think actually a, a, what that podcast taught me is that it's more to do with strategic purchases versus tactical purchases. So I think that in B2B, most B2B products are strategic purchases. Not all, but most are. And therefore, B2B tends to be more strategic. In B2C, most tend to be quite tactical. But that doesn't mean that they're exclusively all tactical. And I think that cars and holidays and homes and things like that are a good example of strategic purchases. And they are much closer to B2B, as I would say, the strategic purchases of B2B. They're much you know, they're much closer in terms of uh, how you market to those people, that 5% or the 95% rule, building brand with people because they're out of market. All of that stuff is really, really um, very, very familiar to us as B2B marketers. So I think that you know, as soon as we say B2C, people immediately think of chewing gum and um, deodorant. But actually, I think that for those strategic purchases, it's incredibly similar that to, to B2B. Of course, the buying unit can be different. Some of the channels can be different, but a lot of them can be similar. So I think that there's lots to be learned from those strategic purchases. Finally, then we're going to come back home to True and uh, your strategy director, Martin Harrison. We asked him, uh, what does being a bit more Don Draper mean? Um, so let's see if you agree with his take on Mad Men's uh, fantastic character. Here we go. Being a bit more Don Draper, I think in the B2B world in particular, it's about um, engaging people emotionally and thinking about the brand as a whole rather than individual products or services and, and telling people exactly how they work and what their rational benefits are. And with all that in mind, what do you think the problem with B2B is right now? There's, a, I mean, there's a range of problems. I think the overall one is the quality of the creative work um, and the insights that are behind it. I was in Cannes last week and um, one of the things that was called out was the B2B lions for the first time. And one of the things that was called out was the lack of craft in B2B. So there's kind of a investment in execution and an investment in in, in creative um, kind of excellence that's missing. But on the other side, on my side as a strategist, what I see a lot in B2B is that people don't really understand when people are thinking about buying them. 
So in the world of B2C, you know, I worked with Unilever and I worked with Diageo and I've worked with other brands like that. And they can describe in minute detail what people are doing when they're making a decision about buying one of their products. You know, they're in a supermarket, they're planning a meal, they're planning a great night out, you know, they're with their friends, all of that type of stuff. When we think about somebody buying a B2B product, you know, whether it's a piece of software, whether it's office furniture or something like that, almost no one that I've spoken to has got a real understanding of the emotional state, the need state, what is happening in that buying situation. And therefore, the ability to emotionally engage them is kind of stunted and you end up just talking about products. Uh, drinking and knowing your, uh, knowing your audience, what's your take on what Martin was saying there, Richard? When we said that we were going to be, uh, you know, calling our, our podcast B2B Needs Don Draper, uh, there was a little bit of pushback, actually. And it was like, well, isn't he a, from a bygone era? Isn't he a womanizer? Isn't he a racist? Isn't he representing kind of all those boomers from the, you know, from the past? And of course, uh, there are certain elements of his character that are disgusting. If you watch the whole, all the series of, uh, the, the, the different series of, uh, of, uh, of, um, Mad Men, then, you know, he's a kind of a, a conflicted character. But we were focusing on the professional elements of, of him and not so much on the, those character, you know, those characteristics, but his work and, you know, whether he was a, a good marketer. And, and, uh, and if, if we had people like him in B2B agencies and on, on, the, on the client side, you know, would B2B marketing be better? We believe it would be. Um, so I concur with everything that Martin said. There's nothing on there that I absolutely uh, kind of fundamentally disagree with, apart from his pronunciation of, uh, of can. He said can. Um, that was my uh, thing that stuck out as, as being an, an anomaly. Um, but I think that th there are many um, other issues um, that we need to grapple with. And I think that we're still grappling with the main thing is that most B2B clients have got a sales orientation or a product orientation and not a marketing orientation which means that the marketing function is subservient to the sales department or it's subservient to the product department. And in both cases, that creates um, all sorts of problems because it ends up being uh, short-termist, ends up being rational communication, not audience-focused. Uh, it ends up being kind of marketing gets told what to do as opposed to originating what needs to be done. It doesn't become the growth engine. There are lots and lots of issues with those orientations. And I, and I would say that actually, based on you know the divide between b2b and b2c that i was talking about earlier that is actually a significant divide that b2b organizations don't have a marketing orientation typically and b2c organizations do they put the client the, the consumer i should say at the focus of what they um, of what of what they stand for and cos i'm going to come to you for the definitive answer can or can and what did you think of the rest of the things martin was saying <laughs> it's can but uh, yeah, I mean, I could listen to Martin talk all day long. Um, so I don't really have anything to add to what he said, really. Um, well, to the fact that I could listen to him all day long. I do listen to him all day long because he's in the office with us, um, which is quite a privilege, quite frankly, because um, he's a great talker and a great, great um, mind for B2B. So uh, we're very lucky to have him. Good stuff. Good stuff. Uh, one final question then before we sign off for today. Um, Richard Cos, what can we expect from season three of B2B News Don Draper? More of the same. Um, we are uh, continuing to tr trawl uh, the world for excellent B2B marketers. If you are an excellent B2B marketer, please hold your hand up and reach out to us. Um, you can find me on uh, LinkedIn or uh, you can contact me uh, at richard at trueagency.com. Please hold your hand up and we would uh, love to in include people who've 
you know, can demonstrate that they are um, uh, interesting and got something to say about B2B marketing. We are focused at the top end of the funnel. We're looking at brand um, effectiveness. And uh, fundamentally, uh, we want people who can who can demonstrate the practitioners uh, of the world, the practitioners who are able to demonstrate, you know, what they've done and how that was being successful in their organization. So the rest of B2B marketers can learn from them. Um, more of the same, uh, but we're also going to be including some other experts that beyond uh, just client side, we're also going to be looking out uh, to other kind of research pieces, other people who are uh, have got a voice and something to say about B2B. And Cos, from your point of view, uh, season three or, or t- uh, 2023 for True, what are you looking forward to? Yeah, I think, I mean, Richard's covered off um, the next season for, for B2B needs Don Draper. For us at True, again, I think it's, really just continuing the journey that we've been on uh we we won our first ipo effectiveness award we became the first ever b2b agency to win an ipo effectiveness award actually last year um so really uh enhancing our effectiveness capabilities um really looking to the cad lions as well um and and entering award there this year so some really good objectives, some exciting objectives, and ultimately everything just stemming down to doing the best work that we can for our clients. So really exciting year ahead. Great stuff. And all it leaves me to say is thanks so much to Richard Parsons and Cosminguides. Thank you, Stuart. Thank you very much, Stuart. You can listen to all the podcasts discussed here at trueagency.com slash podcasts. Thanks so much for a great chat, guys. All the best for 2023. I'm Stuart Black, and see you next time on B2B Needs Don Draper.